Well, if you turn with me now in your Bibles to the book of Judges, it's uh, in the Old Testament, if you're not familiar with where Judges is, it comes after Joshua, Joshua Judges. And today we begin a new series. Uh, we spent pretty much the first half of my first year of being a pastor going through the book of Philippians, and now we are entering on the second book uh, and that we are going to hear from God's Word together. Uh, I look forward to this series, both with anticipation and trepidation. Judges is easily the, one of the hardest, if not the hardest, di- uh, book in the Old Testament, in fact, all of Scripture, to discuss. There are things in this book that would make any human being blush at what happens in this book. But I think this is a book that is important for us today as Christians to hear, to reflect upon, to know what God has to teach us. We live in the midst of a society that is going through rapid decline and things happening that we would think were unthinkable just a mere decade ago. And in some ways, that is not unlike the situation that is happening in the book of Judges. A people of God who are in rapid decline, turning away from the Lord. Now, our nation is not God's nation, uh, though we were founded on many principles that might be derived from that. But here we find some analogies, I think, that will be helpful for us as the people of God to know how to live in the midst of a, of a, of a culture, a society that is turning rapidly away from him. But there is something else for us here in this, in this text, too, that this is a picture of God's church. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the people of Israel were the, the church in a different time, in a different circumstance, in a different period. And they looked different than we do in many ways, but yet they had much that was going on that was cause for concern, cause for repentance. And there is much for us that we need to think about and reflect on for how we think of our church in this world today. Think of the church of God throughout time and history. I'm actually going to read today for us just chapter 1. I'm not going to read the first few verses of chapter 2. Uh, if I did go into chapter 2, we'd be here for an additional half hour this morning, and I'd like to refrain from that, uh, and I'm sure many of you would like me to refrain from that as well. But Judges chapter 1, hear now the reading of the word of the Lord. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. And they found Adonai Bezek at Bezek, and fought against him, and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled. But they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negeb, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who, loved in, who lived in Hebron. 
Now the name of Hebron was former, formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb, and Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his wife, his daughter, for a wife. And when she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negeb, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negeb near Arid. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city. And they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built the city, and it is called and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen, and its villages, or Tanak, and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor, and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibliam, and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo, and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol. So the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or Alab or Aksib or Helba or Afik or Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country. 
for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted dwelling in Mount Heres and Ijalon and Sha'albim, but the, the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upward. This ends the reading of the word of the Lord to us this morning. Let us pray and ask for God's blessing on the preaching of the word. Father in heaven, we come to you as needy people. We come to you as those who need instruction, but more than instruction, Father, we need you to renew and transform our hearts. Help us this morning to receive this word in faith with hearts ready and willing to obey what you call us to do. And Father, may you show us Jesus Christ, our Savior, through this text this morning and how he is our Savior and true deliverer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, now that I have worked through my mouth exercises for the morning, getting all those names out, I'm ready to preach the rest of this text for us. It is one of the longer readings that we're going to have as we navigate through this book together, but it is important for us to read large sections of Scripture together. As we are called, Paul told Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture, and we can hear all this. Now, I'm, I'm certain for many of you, as it was for me the first time I sat down and read Judges, is it was confusing. I thought, what is going on in this book? And how in the world does this relate to me today? Well, my hope is to show that to us today, how the beginning of this book has direct implication for us of who we are in relationship to God, who the church is in relationship to God in this world. I'd like to do this by looking at the introduction to this book. Chapter 1 and chapter through chapter, the beginning of chapter 3 is actually the introduction to the book of Judges. Many commentators point this out, that this whole section is an introduction. It sets the lay of the land for us. So that's what I would like us to do. And then after looking at this as an introduction, I'd like to show what's happening in this text, things that seem very foreign to us today. We read of some of these accounts and we think this is very strange. I think there's ways we can understand this that will not make it so strange. And then lastly, I'd like to see the central question this text asks, which I think is the central question of the book of of Judges. Who will go up for us? You'll see that printed in your bulletin. But that is what I believe is the question for us to answer today. Who will go up for us? The book begins with the words, after the death of Joshua. This book begins with death. Others point out how many books in the Old Testament begin this way. Exodus begins with the death of Joseph. Joshua begins with the death of Moses. Now Judges begins with the death of Joshua. And the death of Joshua creates what we know as a power vacuum. Joshua was the man anointed by God to carry out the task of taking over the land of Canaan. God had called the people of Israel out of Egypt and said, I'm going to give you this land that I promised to your father Abraham, Isaac, your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now you are going to go into that land and expel those who live in this land, and I'm going to give it to you as a possession, an inheritance. And Joshua, the book of Joshua that immediately precedes the book of Judges, 
shows Joshua with his frequent and sweeping victories over the inhabitants of the land of Canaan that we now know as Israel. But Joshua wasn't just a military leader for the people of Israel. He was also a moral leader. Often we look to those who are in authority in the civil realm over us to not just show acuity or ability in the leading wars, but also to demonstrate moral uprightness. And that is what Joshua was for the people of God. He declared to the people of God God's word. And he called them to follow God with resolute obedience, to serve the Lord, the God of Israel, and to forsake all of the gods that may have come with them as they left Egypt, and to forsake the gods of the people that they were going to expel from the land of Canaan. And in Joshua chapter 24, he warns the people of Israel to not follow after the gods that the people of Canaan were following, to not practice the idolatry of these people. But we come here, and now we find that Joshua's work was not totally finished. It wasn't all done. Who is going to go up to fight against the Canaanites? Yes, the work had been begun, and the borders were beginning to circle around. Now it was the responsibility to expel these Canaanites, these Perizzites, and all these different tribes that lived in this land. But then Joshua dies. Joshua dies, and the people wonder, who is going to lead us to victory over these people? You can imagine a similar circumstance if you're in the middle of a war taking over a country and your greatest leader dies. Are we going to finish this mission? What does this say about our God and his promise to us? So the question comes at the beginning of Joshua, who will lead the people of God? As they ask it here, who will go up for us? You will hear this phrase repeated time and time again in the book of Judges. Who will go up for us? Who will go up for the people of God? And that is the central question for us. Not just for the people of Israel, but for us today. Who will go up for us to defeat our enemies? Those who stand against the word of God. Those who oppress the people of God. And more than that, those who turn the people of God away from following him. See, this leader, Joshua, was supposed to lead the people of God to destroy all the people of the land, to exterminate them from this land. And I will touch on this in a moment in a very difficult topic or concept that we know as harem warfare. And I will speak about our relationship to that concept, to that way of approaching that the Israelite people did. But we are faced today with a similar reality But the Apostle Paul tells us that our battle today is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities and spiritual authorities in the heavenly places. That we do not fight against men and women seeking to bring them to death. No, our battle is a spiritual one. And I'd like to unpack that for us and this concept of what we know as harem warfare. It is essential to understand what harem warfare is, which I will explain in a moment, in order to understand what's happening in the book of Judges. It's one of the most difficult things for us today as Christians to explain to the world around us. They just say the Israelites were genocidal, going in and wiping out nations. Their God, this megalomaniac, going in and killing people. So how should we understand this? 
What is harem warfare? What is it that the people of Israel are doing? Well, I think we can begin with the definition of simply what does the word harem mean? It's not a word we use often or even at all. It means simply to devote to destruction. You see this come up in verse 17 in your Bibles. It says, And Judah went with Simeon his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. And the city, the name of that city was called Hormah, which is a similar word to this word that we get, harem. Zach Keel, a fellow OPC minister, and a helpful introductory book on the Bible, notes this, that harem means to, t- to make the thing unusable and irredeemable by both the laity, the common people of Israel, and the priests. They often would do this with certain sacrifices. The burnt offering was a harem to God. It was devoted to complete destruction. They would burn it up, everything, to God as an offering for him. And now Israel was to do this with the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. Why? Simply put, God is judging these nations for their sins. But what right do the people of Israel have to do this? How come they can do this? That's the question that many today in our world ask. What right did they have to do this? Usually we have a theory called just war theory. You can only attack when somebody attacks you. And that is a good principle to operate by in our world. But these people were not disturbing the people of Israel. Why could they do this? They're no better, as we will see in the book of Judges. Israel is no better than the nations that they were going to dispossess. Well, behind this challenge that this world have, I believe, is a belief in the fundamental goodness of man. People have this aversion to this concept because they believe humanity is fundamentally good who occasionally do bad things. But the point of judges is to show us that mankind is fundamentally evil who occasionally do good things. But there is a much larger question that we need to answer about the land of Israel. What was God trying to do here? Why was he doing this in Canaan? Why was he sending his people to go in and and do these things of harem warfare, complete and utter destruction of these people? I believe the most helpful way to explain this was explained by a professor at the seminary I went to named Meredith Klein, in which he talks about something called intrusion ethics. I will explain this in a moment. But intrusion ethics, it is simply the ethics, the morality of the final judgment, the ethics of heaven itself are intruding into the time and space of this world. The ethics of heaven, its judgment upon sin is now coming into a time and place in a particular location in this world. And God was accomplishing through the people of Israel this end times-like judgment. It was intruding ahead of time into the land of Canaan. What God is showing the people of Israel is they are returning to Eden, a holy land governed by holy laws inhabited by a holy people. And there could be no unholy people in this land. That anything that was unholy must be gotten rid of, must be put to death, 
must be discarded. And here what is happening is the holiness of heaven is making its appearance into the land of Canaan. And no one can or ought to survive its appearance in the world unless, unless they have been cleansed of their unholiness. And that is the whole sacrificial system that has been set up in Israel. That is the reason that they circumcised the people of God, that they circumcised the males. It was to show that they were set apart for God, that they had a right to enter in this land, and that if they sinned, they had the sacrificial system to maintain their holiness as they dwelt in this land. If they forsook circumcision, if they forsook the sacrificial system, they abandoned their right to be in this land. And they became proper subjects of harem warfare themselves. In order to dwell in this holy land, you must be marked out as holy. And there was a great danger for people if they did not maintain holiness as they dwelt in this land. Because ultimately, they're wicked. The people of Israel are just like the nations they're going in to dispossess. But God tells the people of Israel that this land is filled with tribes and nations that are filled with evil, all kinds of evil. Leviticus 18 tells us of these abominable evils that fill that land. Leviticus 18 lists incest, infanticide, bestiality, pornography, homosexuality. A world that looks almost exactly like our own today. And all these people are now to be judged for this gross immorality that has now risen to heaven as God is going to give this land over to his people and exterminate all of these grossly vile and wicked people. But in Leviticus 18, God tells this to his people. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land become unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. What God is accomplishing through Israel is the intrusion, the appearance of heavenly holiness through their own hands. Now God could have certainly wiped out the people of this land of Canaan as he had done to the Egyptians. Remember, the angel of death, comes in the night and kills all the firstborn of Egypt. God could have done that, but he didn't. Instead, he uses the people of Israel to go in to accomplish this task. And we will see in this book of Judges the nature of man and their ability to carry out this task and the dire consequences that result from their failure to do it. There's something important for us to reflect upon. That we are not in the same place as Israel today. We have not been entrusted with the same responsibility and duty that Israel has towards the nations that they have. We have not been entrusted with the sword. In fact, one of the chief markers of the new covenant is that the sword is no longer possessed by the church. It is now possessed by the civil government, and we are called to submit to them. Romans chapter 13 and 1 Peter discusses this. And the reason for this is that 
Christ fulfilled in himself the true meaning and purpose of harem warfare. We'll hear more on this in a little bit. But that task is no longer needed for the church to accomplish because of what Christ did on the cross. The task to carry out harem warfare in the land of Palestine, of Canaan, is no longer needed to be done. But this also has significant implications for us about how we even think of the land of Israel today. There is no longer a holy land in Palestine. Now it has great historical significance for us as the people of God. This is where our Savior lived his life, and we can learn much from that land. But that land bears no special significance any longer for the church. It plays no special role in the history of salvation. The Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1 that now the church is the holy nation, the royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. And then in one chapter later, he tells the people that they are sojourners and exiles on the earth. Wherever you are, even if you are living in the land of Israel, if you are a Christian and you believe in Jesus Christ, you are a sojourner. You are an exile. That land is no longer significant in the history of redemption. And that is our place today as the church. We, as the author of Hebrews says, along with the saints of old, look for a heavenly city. One that is not here upon this earth. The author of Hebrews says this, These, all these saints, died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Israel was never the goal for the people of God. And now this whole world, including the land of Israel, is common. It is something that we share in common with the unbelievers around us. And we Christians do not find our home ultimately here upon this earth, in this land. Now there is coming a day of final harem warfare that will happen. When this earth will be turned into the holy dwelling place of God himself. But Christ is the one who will execute the harem warfare on this world. Revelation chapter 1 In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. In Christ's hands is the sword, in his mouth is the sword, and through this word he will slay the nations who do not submit to him, the people who do not submit to God. Why is this important as we approach Judges? Why is it important to understand harem warfare? Because if we approach judges with an improper framework, 
we will be inclined to misinterpret what actually is happening in this book. We will think that when they're showing mercy that this is a good thing. We'll think that they are being kind when in fact they're being disobedient to God. And the world around us looks at God's actions in the land of Canaan and they are not only puzzled, but they are offended. It's grotesque to them. Of course it's grotesque. People do not want to be judged for their sin. But this is what is coming in the end. This is what Christ promised. He will return and judge the whole earth. That day is coming. And it is with that in mind, I want us to look briefly at what is happening in chapter 1. That one chapter 1, 1 through 131, or the end of chapter 1, is a preview of the whole book of Judges, of what is going to happen in this book. There's two main sections here. Part 1 deals with the tribe of Judah. This goes from verse 1 to verse 22. And there is a second section that deals with the house of Joseph, verse 22 to 36. The house of Joseph is used as a catch-all for the additional tribes that are listed towards the end of this chapter. Now first, we are presented with the tribe of Judah and their preeminence. This is something held out through the Old Covenant and the Old Testament of the nature of Judah. And God shows the initial success. People are seeking the Lord. Who will go up for us? And through this, God accomplishes his victories through Judah. He shows his faithfulness to his promise that he will execute harem warfare on the people of the land. Yet, at the very beginning of this book, at the very beginning, their acts are mixed with disobedience. Things that to us seem innocuous or harmless should immediately be striking us and thinking, this is not right. Several theologians show that Judah, by enlisting Simeon, is not trusting God's promise to him that he will actually fulfill this by himself. Judah shall go up, the Lord said. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. What is the first thing that Judah does? He enlists his neighboring tribe, Simeon. He doesn't fully trust the word of the Lord. And then when they are executing justice, what form of justice are they executing? Canaanite practices. Verse 6. Adonai Bezek fed, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Something that's very strange to us. Why would they do this? See, what is ultimately an act of justice, capturing a foreign king, is adopting a Canaanite practice of humiliating your opponents. They were not called to do this. They were called to kill this man. Instead, they take matters into their own hands. And only one, Only one city in all of this list that Judah attacks is subject to harem warfare. And we see that in verse 17 in Zephath. They only fulfill God's command completely one time. And while Judah conducted this holy warfare, the tribe of Benjamin, one of his neighboring tribes, not only failed to drive out the people of Jerusalem, They then live alongside them. They say, we'll just be neighbors. 
and the situation doesn't get any better. Then we turn to the house of Joseph, and this is a description of the rest of the tribes. Instead of completing this work of harem warfare, they fall short. Each of these tribes is listed for us to say over and over and over again, they did not drive them out. There are seven tribes represented here. There are more tribes than this in Israel, but there are seven given to us to show the complete failure on the part of Israel to do what God had commanded them to do. And then when they successfully attack Bethel, they allowed a man and his family to go free. Again, an inversion of the situation that we see in the beginning of the book of Joshua. A woman who stands there and is afraid of the people of Israel, knowing that they represent Yahweh, the Lord and God of Israel. And she welcomes them in. Instead, these men ask a man and set him free, turning him away, and he goes and builds a city off by himself. They offered mercy to one whom, to whom they were to show no mercy, failing to trust that the Lord would be with them in their work. And the picture at the end of this chapter ends on a bleak note. Not only did the tribe of Dan fail to dispossess the Amorites, instead the Amorites who, it is the Amorites who maintain their borders, It is an inversion that the tribe of Dan was to establish their borders. Yet here it is the enemies of God that is sustaining their borders. Yes, they're subject to forced labor, but they still exist. And they are stronger. Over and over again in chapter 1 is the failure of the people of God to carry out what God had called them to do. Failing to drive them out. Instead, deciding to live among them as if life were normal and showing mercy when they had no call to show mercy. But ultimately, this is a picture for us. Apostle Paul tells us these are written down for our instruction. This is a picture for us in the way that we deal with sin. We go easy on sin. We make compromises so that we don't have to do the hard work to root out sin in our lives. We think we're being merciful. We think we're giving it time. When in fact, we're simply just being disobedient to God. We end up living alongside sin in our lives as if things were normal. Just like the people of Israel did. Because the work is too hard. The sacrifice is too great. And we, like the people of Israel, need a deliverer. The question that opens this book, who shall go up for us, is a question for you and I. Who will go up for us to defeat our enemies, our greatest enemy, our sin? But we have the privilege today. We have the privilege today where we stand in redemptive history. That we know the end at the beginning. See that there is a true and greater Joshua. 
a leader who would lead the people of God. We know this because of what Jesus told some disciples on the road to Emmaus. After Jesus rose from the dead, he appears to a couple of men. And the men were talking to Jesus. They didn't recognize him at that point. And they said this to Jesus. We had hoped that he, Jesus, was the one to redeem Israel. We thought he was going to give us this land. What does Jesus say to them? O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Judges in the Old Testament Hebrew Bible is considered part of the prophets. It is part of what is called the former prophets. Most of us know prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Lamentations, etc. But Jesus is showing from the prophets, including judges, this. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This text is about Jesus. You ask me how? How? Who will go up for us? One from the tribe of Judah. Jesus Christ is the one, the promised one, who was born from the tribe of Judah, who would go up. But where did he go up? A better question, upon what did Jesus go up? Jesus conquered our sin and our enemies when he went up on the cross. When he was lifted up, the ultimate sign of harem warfare in this world. The intrusion of heavenly judgment upon himself. And the only way that you and I can be saved from the final judgment that is coming is if somebody else takes the harem warfare for us. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ did on that cross. He is the true Joshua who went up. But here's what happened. God devoted his son to destruction. And Jesus willingly took this harem judgment upon himself. He did this because he knew that we, just like all these tribes of Israel, cannot save ourselves. We ultimately will fail. We will not put to death our sin. We will let it live. We will live alongside it. The work is too hard. We cannot do it. We in our own strength could never conquer sin. But this is precisely what Jesus does on that cross when he goes up. Is that he conquers sin and Satan, our greatest enemy, by taking the sword in himself. See, the edge of the sword that we hear repeated in this book that was meant to destroy those nations around them is instead turned inward upon Christ. This is what Isaiah 53 speaks about. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed 
for our iniquities. And the beautiful promise of what Isaiah declares, upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This is ultimately the picture of judges for us. That there is one who has gone up, who has borne the judgment that every single one of us deserve, so that he could then take that judgment away. And that you can now freely enter into his promised land to dwell at peace, secure, no more enemies. And that is the hope that you have, Christian. If you trust in Jesus Christ, that that judgment has been removed from you. You are no longer exposed to it. And if you are here today and you do not trust Jesus Christ, I call you to believe on him, to trust in him. That day is coming. The day of judgment will arrive. And you will have to give an account for why you will stand in the day of judgment. And Jesus Christ is that Savior. He is the one who takes all of that away. So that then you can stand in God's presence, perfectly righteous. As we heard from the catechism. It is a gift that you simply receive by faith. So believe in Jesus Christ today. Flee to him. Run to him as your Savior. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we need Jesus Christ. We need his love and mercy. We need his sacrifice on our behalf. I pray that you would work in our hearts faith in Jesus to trust that he is our true Savior, that he is the one who has gone up for us. Lord, help us in return from that to put to death sin in our lives as Romans calls us to. Not because through it we will obtain life, but through it we, because we already have life in Jesus Christ and we see the destruction that sin wreaks in our lives. Keep us humble before you that you are our only Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.